Good evening. It's wonderful to see so many people here, and I think I see a few new faces. Um, so let me introduce um, the house <laughs> and myself. Uh, I'm Christina von Hodenberg. I'm the director of the German Historical Institute. We are an institute which is all about um, facilitating scholarly exchange between British and German academia and beyond. And um, uh, for a long time, we've had a special affiliation or agreement with the Leo Beck Institute here in London um, because its mission in um, spreading uh, the discourse and the, uh, and the knowledge about German Jewish history and Jewish European history is very much also one of the issues that we are interested in. Um, and so I'm very pleased that we host this uh, lecture tonight. It will actually, um, the lecture by Professor Wallach, who is sitting next to me here uh, from Gettysburg College. Um, it will not be me chairing the lecture tonight, but it will be uh, Dr. Daniel Wildmann uh, from Queen Mary University and the Leo Beck, head of the Leo Beck Institute in London. And I hand over to you now um, to introduce Kerry. Thank you very much. Um, I'm also very happy to welcome all of you um, to the second lecture of this season's Leo Beck Institute lecture series. As Christina has pointed out, the lecture is organized jointly by us, the Leo Beck Institute, and the German Historical Institute. I'm very happy to welcome you all here in this extremely beautiful venue. And my thanks go out to Christina and her team um, for not only hosting us, also co-organizing these lecture series with us. It's really a great pleasure and honor to work with you. This year's topic is, as you know, acting Jewish between identity and attire. It's a topic which is, on one hand, highly political, on the other hand, very visual, but also um, has a lot to do with material culture, as we will see probably in your lecture. And the Weimar Republic, or rather the life of the Jews, Jewish people in the Weimar Republic, is a case in point for all this, and a very challenging case in point. And I'm therefore really, really very proud to introduce, to introduce tonight's guest speaker, Professor Kerry Wallach. Probably the expert when it comes down to this topic and the Weimar Republic. Kerry is an associate professor of German studies at the Gettysburg College. And her main research areas are German-Jewish literature, I need my glasses, history and culture, gender and sexuality, visual culture, and of course, Weimar Republic. Kerry has published widely in all these fields. And I think if I'm not completely wrong, you have currently about five articles forthcoming, which is a lot. So I'd like to mention at least some of her books and book projects. Mainly this one, Passing Illusions, Jewish Visibility in Weimar, Germany, published in 2017. A brilliant book, and the book is the reason why I asked her to come to London and give a lecture here as part of this year's lecture series. <coughs> Two new books are already in preparation, which is quite a lot, I would say. One is a monograph. Rachel Salit um, Marcos, a Jewish artist in Berlin and Paris. I'm a bit familiar with this project. It's 
extremely fascinating and waiting for the book. <laughs> to be honest, I'm going to buy it too, promise you. And the second book is a collection of essays, a volume co-edited with Aya Elada from the Hebrew University, also a colleague from the two of us, and tentatively entitled German Jewish Studies Next Generations. In other words, it's a book, it will be a collection of essays about the next generations of researchers and scholars in our field of research. And this brings me to my next point. Kerry is on the editorial board of a book series called German Jewish Cultures, established on behalf of the LBR London and published by Indiana. Oh, great. Here we have some more information about this. Published by Indiana University Press. It's really, I think, exciting book series dedicated not only to the present generation of scholars in our field, but also to the next um, generation of scholars in the field of German-Jewish history and culture. Tonight, Kerry is going to talk about coming out as Jewish in Weimar, Germany. So Kerry, please, over to you. Great. Um, thank you so much, Daniel um, and uh, Christina, for this wonderfully kind invitation, and also to um, the German Historical Institute and the Leo Beck Institute for arranging this, this talk. Um, and I'm very pleased to be here, truly honored to be part of this distinguished lecture series, and I'm looking forward to our discussion afterward. And, I, and let me just say that the book came out in uh, 2017, but I'm updating it with maybe some questions for today. So let me open with a question that will guide our inquiry. Why did Jews choose to pass, to conceal their identity, or not pass? In what situations did Jews make themselves visible and recognizable as Jews, declare their Jewishness openly? When and where is it safe and advisable to come out as Jewish? Is it safe to do so on the street, in a train, while visiting a resort town? And here, I'm mainly interested in how Jews acted, acted and continue to act during periods of relatively free self-expression and legal rights, such as Weimar Germany. I'm less interested in when concealing Jewishness was absolutely necessary for survival as during the Nazi period. So I'd like to add here that I'm very sorry we find ourselves in a time when these questions are again highly relevant due to rising anti-Semitism. Some of you might be sitting here tonight because of a new and pressing interest in Jewish visibility and the fear that can accompany it. I generally avoid making direct comparisons between specific years during the 1920s and 1930s and today, um, but I'm certain that we can learn valuable lessons for today by studying Weimar and I'll try to do some of that throughout the talk. Most scholars who have studied Jewish visibility in Germany before 1933 tend to focus on invisibility and related impulses, secularization, radical assimilation, de-Judaization, self-abnegation. In my work, I consider both historical references to and also cultural representations of passing, hiddenness, and also efforts to be visible, to come out as Jewish. I look at instances when Jewish visibility was concealed, revealed, and contested. I examine not only what was lost by passing, but also what was gained through self-identification and assertions of Jewish identity. 
So here you see a cartoon um, that deals with sort of unmasking. Um, it's from a satirical Jewish periodical called Shlemiel. Um, and it plays on this idea of revealing a concealed identity. Now is the time to come out, to be visible. Um, and this is, of course, in a carnival um, costume ball. But my central argument relates to this. Um, and namely, in addition to efforts to become invisible, there was a pronounced desire for Jewish visibility among Jews in Weimar Germany. In other words, many Jews only gave the illusion of blending in, of passing. Whereas some viewers might have taken them for non-Jews, those looking with a trained eye would have been able to spot Jewishness. Revealing one's Jewishness often involved fostering dual legibility, and perhaps Henry Beale also spoke about this last month in this lecture series. And by this, I mean appearing non-Jewish and Jewish at the same time, managing dual coding in order to be openly Jewish at the right time and in the right place, and in ways that were deemed fitting for a population under scrutiny. Of course, there were also plenty of open displays of Jewishness, and we'll look at some of those as well. So my talk today is divided into three parts to help you listen. Um, the first part is a brief discussion of theoretical models that I use for understanding passing and coming out. The second is a longer look at the history of displays of Jewishness in Europe with a focus on Weimar Germany. And then in the third part, I'll look at representations of Jewishness in several films. So you have to stick around till the end if you want to see the film clips. Okay. So first, I just want to say a word about terminology. So the terms passing and coming out don't appear in the historical sources. Um, as a German studies scholar, I often study texts at the level of the precise language used, and terminology matters. Um, in fact, there is still no word in German that is an exact translation of the concept of passing as we use this term in English, um, though other terms convey a less sustained act, durchgehen als für etwas gehalten werden. For coming out, I found that examples from this period use terms like sich bekennen or bekenntnis, a confession, a way of openly acknowledging or admitting Jewishness. And I have a quote that I can read for you. This is from 1925 in the Israelitisches Familienblatt. This is my translation. Everyone probably knows members of the Jewish faith who, in Jewish circles and even among non-Jewish acquaintances, relay with a certain amount of pride that in many cases non-Jews don't take them for Jewish at all, and that other parties were supposedly terribly surprised to learn that before them stood a confessor, a bekenner, of Judaism. These confessors then usually add the following addendum to this confession, bekenntnis, with a hint of personality. In our family, we generally all look non-Jewish. And from this quote, we, we see the terms um, bekenner, bekenntnis, being sort of thrown around as they relate to admitting, confessing, um, being open about Jewishness. And what's interesting for me um, as well is that uh, scholar Katie Sutton has located the same term, sich bekennen, within the autobiographical writings of Weimar transvestites. It was a term that meant coming out in a queer or an LGBT context in Weimar too. So my theoretical claim is that seeing Jewishness in this period uh, entailed a par parsing a form of minority visibility that is once, at once gendered, queer, and racialized. Gender was a constitutive part of the process of dealing, uh, deciding when to engage and display Jewishness. In general, women were less visible and less likely to be presumed Jewish and more likely to be accused of passing. 
In studying when Jews in Weimar Germany chose to come out, we can look to already established models for understanding passing and not passing in African-American studies and LGBT and queer studies. Some work has already been done on Jewish passing in American contexts, including comparing American Jewish literature with the literature of the Harlem Renaissance. And so up here, you'll see two books, and I'll mention these scholars in just a moment, um, by Alison Hobbs and Kenji Yoshino. So first, a look at African-American literature. The concept of, of passing, at least in the English language context, is taken from African-American history. The term first emerged in 19th century notices about runaway slaves, passing for free, passing for white. And the current usage of the term became standard in the 1920s. Historian Alison Hobbs has observed that, quote, a veritable explosion of literary work on racial passing, end quote, occurred at a moment during the Harlem Renaissance when black artists celebrated blackness and racial, and racial pride. Nella Larson's book Passing from 1929 is the most famous, also Walter White's Flight. Other famous works on passing for white were written by Jewish authors, such as Fanny Hurst's Imitation of Life, and there were several films made of this as well. In other, in other words, talking and writing about passing can be a way to persuade readers to take pride in their identity rather than to pass. Legal scholar Kenji Yoshino's work teaches us that there are different ways to pass, particularly with respect to sexual or queer identity. Covering is less extreme than passing. It relates to visibility, it relates less to visibility and more to obtrusiveness. Even covering can be psychologically damaging to minorities who do not feel as if they can exercise all of their civil rights. Yoshino draws on notions of sexual passing and closetedness that are rooted in queer theory and LGBT studies. Notably, Eve Sedgwick suggested that parallels between homophobia and anti-Semitism have yielded commonalities between coming out as gay and coming out as Jewish, especially in urban environments. Of course, in Weimar cinema, we also find examples of gay men who faced blackmail or imprisonment uh, passing for heterosexual, as well as numerous instances of cross-dressing. So now I'm gonna move on to part two uh, and talk a little bit more about history. Um, looking at Jewish visibility in Western European history specifically, uh, and um, Weimar Germany in particular. So in order to understand what it meant to choose to be visibly Jewish in modern times, we need to take a look at earlier times when Jews had less control over this. Historically, visibility was not always a choice. Now, we're throwing it way back, like 1,000 years back, right? Okay. 800 years, anyway. So medieval and early modern sumptuary, European sumptuary laws, though not always enforced, required Jews to make themselves distinguishable by wearing material signifiers, including yellow pointed hats, you can see on the left, or circular insignias, as in the middle, large white rough collars in the slide on the right, or badges or distinctive garments of another color that, that represented Jewish otherness. One historian has termed these vestimentary stigma symbols. Ordinances stating that Jews were obligated to display a badge or head covering of sorts were part of European, Western European legal codes for more than 500 years, from 1215 until the late 18th century. It's widely known, of course, that yellow stars of David were again imposed on Jews in the 20th century, and we'll come back to the color yellow in a bit. 
everyone's familiar with this image. I even saw it on a brochure on the table here. Um, so thinking about the Jewish Enlightenment. With the exception of the Nazi era, markers of Jewishness generally became much more subtle and more difficult to detect after the Enlightenment. Many modern visual signifiers of Jewishness were not imposed by governmental sanctions, but rather were adopted or rejected voluntarily by Jews. Judah Leb Gordon's 1862 entreaty, Be a Man in the Streets and a Jew at Home, has been taken as a summation of the Haskalah or Jewish Enlightenment, and more broadly for, vo for the voluntary relegation of religious practice and distinctive dress to the private sphere. Some Weimar Jews wanted to resist assimilatory trends. Instead of restricting Jewishness to private spaces, for example, members of the Zionist pioneer movement longed to overwrite the old Enlightenment mentality with a new motto, be a Jew at home and a Jew out there. So we can contrast that with the previous model and look at some of the sort of impulses toward visibility that we find in the Weimar period. But pushback against Jewish assimilation, visibility, and prominence took many forms, including anti-Semitic responses and anti-Semitic representations of Jews, often with gender dimensions. Women were more likely to be criticized for displaying opulent items that called attention to themselves. Highly conspicuous displays of wealth, such as expensive clothing and jewelry, were coded Jewish within the European and German imagination long before the Weimar period, as this caricature from 1850 suggests. This caricature also propagated the stereotype that Jewish women were nouveau riche, or parvenu, who, who married for titles and wealth. And of course, if you look at the translation here, or the original, um, hinting that this woman wore her jewelry two or three times a year. It's sort of a coded reference to wearing it to synagogue on the three days of year that she might have gone to synagogue, this sort of Dreitage Juden stereotype. As we enter the Weimar era, which began just over 100 years ago, we can also think of the choice to be visible as a political decision. Under the relatively emancipated conditions of the Weimar Republic, both public performances of Jewishness and representations of Jewishness rendered Jewish difference visible and desirable under certain circumstances. At times, individuals and communities chose to acknowledge their Jewishness openly through acts of solidarity or community building, rather than concealing it in order to conform. Zionist circles, though in the minority, about 4% of German Jewry, encouraged Jews to take pride in standing out. Liberal Jews, in contrast, were more likely to seek to blend in. Some considered acculturation an accomplishment that propelled them toward the goal of being more German. Others believed Jews were incapable of passing or that Jewish difference existed on an indelible or biological level. And we hear lots today about exercising caution in public in terms of displaying Jewishness. So, um, we hear some of these same ideas today. Weimar Berlin had a population of roughly 4 million and thus generally provided a, a significant degree of anonymity for its residents. Approximately 4% or 173,000 Berliners were Jewish. East European Jews, so-called Ostjuden, who made up about 20% of Germany's Jewish population by 1925, were highly visible and called attention to Jewish difference. They had a strong presence both in Weimar Jewish culture 
and as targets of anti-Semitism. This photo montage by photographer Abraham Pizarek depicts traditional Jewish life in the Scheunenviertel district near Berlin's Alexanderplatz. The 1920s saw the emergence of a tension between a newly discovered sense of Jewish identity and pride on the one hand, and a deep-seated fear of anti-Semitic attacks on the other. And here I'd like to add that we're also seeing Jewish pride responses to anti-Semitism right now in 2020. In response to the recent uptick of anti-Semitic events, for example, thousands of people took to the streets in a no-hate, no-fear solidarity march in New York on January 5th. And in December, at a Together Against Anti-Semitism solidarity rally here in London, one speaker said that being Jewish in Britain today should not need to be an act of courage. <clears throat> to return to the Weimar period, and I have to say, when I was first writing this book in 2015, it was published in 2017, all of these events that I was writing about seemed far more shocking than they do right at this moment. Anti-Semitic attacks in the Weimar period were intermittent and targeted anyone who looked Jewish, especially men who wore distinctive garments, head coverings, beards, or carried objects such as prayer books. In 1923, violent riots against Jews and Jewish-looking persons broke out in the Schoenenviertel district of Berlin. But not only East European Jews were targets of anti-Semitism on the streets of Berlin. In 1927, paramilitary SA men, the brown shirts of the early Nazi party, assaulted pedestrians who were assumed to be Jewish in several locations in Berlin and Cologne. Goebbels, who was then Gauleiter of Berlin, led a crowd of 10,000 in demonstrations at Wittenbergplatz. Attacks in cafes on and near the Kurfürstendamm followed. And on the first day of Rosh Hashanah in 1931, September 12th, a number of Jews fell victim to another violent evening attack on the Kurfürstendamm. National socialists in plain clothes suddenly set upon Jews and Jewish-looking people walking on the Kudam, many of whom were, quote, recognizable in part because they were dressed in celebratory attire for the Jewish New Year. Responses to these kinds of attacks took a number of forms. Many Jews exercised caution when it came to displaying Jewishness or acting Jewish in public. One reader of Die Jüdische Frau, a magazine published in the mid-1920s, you can see the cover on the right here in the upper right-hand corner, wrote to the editors uh, to seek advice, explaining that she wanted to encourage her friend to subscribe to the magazine, even though her friend feared she wouldn't be able to read the magazine on a train due to its overtly Jewish cover. The editors responded that there were enough readers who were proud or brave enough to read it openly, and that the friend didn't need to subscribe. Today, everyone reads on Kindle. Can't read, see the cover anymore, the iPhones. Liberal Jewish organizations, such as the Zentralverein and the Reichsbund Jüdischer Frontsoldaten, advised their members to take precautions when in proximity to a synagogue, though members of the Reichsbund, that's the National Union of Jewish War Veterans, also publicly wore badges to signify their status as Jewish veterans and to be visible to one another. Their newsletter is full of slogans, wear your badge everywhere, wear and salute our badge. You can see badge on the right here. Already in the early decades of the 20th century, some highly visible members of student and youth organizations proudly displayed Jewishness by wearing caps and badges that co-opted the medieval yellow badge. 
Zionist groups sometimes paired the color yellow with blue and white. It's interesting to note that both Zionist groups and student fraternities within the liberal cartel convent organization um, wore yellow as their distinctive color or couleur. Yellow caps, sashes or bands, and pins recuperated the color yellow for Jewish purposes. One Berlin group, Sprevia, included an explicit reference to the medieval yellow badge in a song. What was previously a stigma became our badge of honor. And this is reminiscent of what Shulamid Folkov has termed Trotzjudentum, or sort of defiant Jewishness. Needless to say, displaying a yellow, a yellow badge or sash was the opposite of trying to pass. Passing and not passing was important not only in cities, but also in resort towns. Jewish periodicals, such as the Zentralvereinzeitung, regularly printed lists of which resorts were anti-Semitic and should thus be avoided. In her book, Next Year in Marienbad, Miriam Zadov describes the ritual of sizing up other visitors while walking through a resort town. And I quote her book here. Observers on the promenades were avidly engaged in decoding the body, seeking to deduce from the appearance and habitus of the person confronting them something about his or her character, end quote. This was, of course, entangled with the politics of self-policing. Jews, and especially Jewish women, were told not to make themselves too conspicuously Jewish. A Jewish self-discipline organization, a Selbstzuchtorganisation, distributed pamphlets instructing women to wear less jewelry. Some took the directive to be inconspicuous as an excuse to pass or at least cover Jewishness. Others went out of their way to out other Jews and reveal their Jewishness. And elsewhere in the book, I look at uh, hostile outings, those who attempted to profit by exposing hidden Jewishness. Who was presumed to be Jewish was closely linked to racial stereotypes about Jewish appearance, especially hair and eye color and coloring in general. Much of this built on scientific research by Rudolf Virchow and others about whether Jews were more likely to have dark hair and eyes. One anecdote about two women at a resort tells of a blonde who has distanced herself from the overdressed Jews at the resort who resembled jewelry store windows. Her Jewishness only becomes known to the reader when she is presumed to be non-Jewish by a brunette acquaintance who offers her some non-kosher meat. The punchline comes when the blonde responds to this offer. Not for anything. My parents were very orthodox. I was raised strictly, and I eat only kosher. This woman comes out as Jewish only under pressure, only when taken for a non-Jew. Racial stereotypes were to some extent internalized by many Weimar Jews, who, at least by 1930, no longer contested the idea that Jews look different from non-Jews, but rather defensively sought to counter allegations of an inferior Jewish racial aesthetic. In 1930, the Israelisches Familienblatt organized a prize contest encouraging mothers to send in photographs of their beautiful, even superior children. The editors wrote in a protective tone, indeed, the typical Jewish child is infinitely more beautiful purely expressive and noble of race than the nationalistic racial theories can even imagine. 
And if you're curious, it's hard to see maybe when I don't have a pointer. Um, but number 17 here was the overall winner. <laughs> and then six and four, up a little higher, I think, were the runners up. Jewish women were considered less visible and more adaptable, better able to integrate or pass as members of the majority population. Some scholars claim that Jewish women have always been only ambiguously identifiable due to a lack of permanent bodily markers of difference. And here many of them are, are specifically talking about circumcision. Not only Jewish women, but also women in other contexts, including African-American passing novels, were considered more slippery or mercurial, more likely to pass. I maintain that sexist stereotypes, allegations of excess, and openly discriminatory practices compelled Weimar Jewish women to find new strategies for being subtly visible. Visible markers linked to biological or physical traits, such as dark hair, dark eyes, and prominent noses, made it more likely that one would be identified as a Jew. But in an age when hair dye and plastic surgery were becoming ever more popular, even supposedly innate markers included few factors that remained unchangeable. Advertisements for women's wigs and hair dye were ubiquitous in the Weimar Jewish press, and by the late 1920s, ads for plastic surgery also appeared. Of course, these weren't only in the Jewish press, they were everywhere. These ads highlighted the significance of nose corrections, nasenkorrektur, for personal or professional success with such slogans as, a woman's face is her calling card, das Antlitz der Frau ist ihre Visitenkarte, or your appearance determines your life. Despite growing acceptance of racialized models of Jewishness, being recognizably Jewish in public became more of a choice and less a, a predetermined destiny. So now this is my final example of the importance of Jewish visibility in, his in history before I get to the film section. And this is also the best example that I have of a German Jewish passing narrative. This short cautionary drama by Jakob Löwenberg called Der Gelbe Fleck, or The Yellow Badge, was first written in 1899, but not published until 1924, when it appeared alongside other short stories by the author in a collection by the same name. The drama tells how one mother's revelation that she passed for non-Jewish for several decades caused her anti-Semitic son, Hans, to take his own life. There are two yellow badges in this story. One is the medieval badge referenced by Hans, who asserts that Jews should still be required to wear the badge as back in the Middle Ages, wie einst im Mittelalter. The other metaphorical badge, and again, bear with me on the metaphor here, is the blonde hair of Hans's mother, for whom being blonde becomes a kind of curse because it obscures her recognizability as a Jew and imbues her with greater social fluidity. Here, the yellow badge symbolizes both Jewish visibility and invisibility. The drama was written during an era when the yellow badge that previously had been imposed as a stigma was worn anew as a symbol of pride. But also at this time, race science began to, began to define Germanness and Jewishness as chromatically distinct and vis visually distinguishable from one another. 
This play thus epitomizes the contradictions inherent in Jewish visibility during the Weimar period. Precisely because Jewishness was often difficult or impossible to see, Jewish visibility was mired in racialized stereotypes about Jewish appearance. Because women were perceived as the least likely to be recognized as Jews, they were portrayed as the most likely to pass. Toward the end of the Weimar period, yellow badges and stars of David took on new meaning and served as ominous warnings. Though worn by some as outward symbols of pride and defiance, they, simulta they simultaneously hinted at the danger of being marked as overtly Jewish. We can recall Jüdische Rundschau editor Robert Belsch's article in response to the boycott of April 1, 1933, Tragt ihn mit Stolz den gelben Fleck, wear it with pride, the yellow badge. Belch later expressed remorse for having underestimated the character and intentions of the Nazis and said his headline should have been, pack your bags and run, which of course many Jews and others did in 1933 and the years that followed. Um, many didn't, but quite a number of German Jews in particular did. But in the early days of 1933, being out and proud as a Jew still meant recuperating such stigma symbols, though within a year, far fewer Jews in Germany were comfortable coming out as Jewish. So in the third part of my talk, I'm going to use film to shed light on how Jews and Jewishness were depicted in the Weimar era. There was a disproportionately high number of prominent Jewish actors in Germany at this time. One explanation for this was that what made Jewish actors so talented was their ability to pass as someone else on the stage or screen. Scholars, too, have argued that theatricality is bound up with Jewishness. This has special relevance for the 1920s, when exaggerated or especially demonstrative gestures were both a natural part of expressionist performances and something that could code a performer or character as Jewish. So bodily movements, gestures, all of this was sort of subtly coded Jewish and expressionist. Needless to say, cinematic images of Jews were often controversial. Jewish critics argued that many were not persuasively authentic. Others exaggerated Jewishness to the point of mockery. Rising levels of anti-Semitism amplified the stakes. Jewish filmgoers and critics knew that on-screen portrayals had the ability to influence the German population at large, and they praised films that productively depicted Jews without the use of caricature or stereotype. And the second and third film clips that I'm going to show discuss uh, or offer examples of positive depictions of Jews on screen. However, the first film clip that I'd like to play is about the opposite of coming out, assimilation. Das alte Gesetz, or The Ancient Law from 1923, deals with the son of an Orthodox rabbi from a Galician shtetl who transforms himself and his appearance to become an actor on a Viennese stage. And it's a silent film um, with intertitles in both English and German. Bear with me here. It's just a two-minute clip.
Okay, the key moment here, the final moment in his physical transformation is when Baruch Meyer cuts off his side locks, his payas, in order to fully look the part of an actor who can play many roles. Body modification enables him to get the job as a member of the court theater troupe. This film has actually been re-released um, recently and was even shown at the Berlinale last year, so perhaps you've heard of it. In stark contrast to narratives about looking less Jewish were films that were celebrated and defended Jews and thereby advocated for the ability to be openly Jewish. So I'd like to show you parts of a short film made in 1930 by Julius Pinchever, who was known for his artistic advertising films. It's a short animated film called Chad Gadya, also titled Ein Lämpchen, or The Little Goat. It was made with voiceover soundtracks in multiple languages, including German, Hebrew, English, and French. Chad Gadya is a widely known Aramaic and Hebrew folk song, sung regularly at Passover seders, you know, the one about the father buying a goat for two zuzim. Um, the full song is a bit darker than that, as we'll see. The German version was the only one to include a brief frame story in the film of a non-animated, real family sitting down to a Passover seder, and you'll see it in the upper right here, um, situating the animation as a performance that is part of the seder. Before you see the film, it's important to know that the German version features a voice track recorded by German-Jewish actress Irena Trisch, who's shown here on the left. Trisch was known for her stage roles in Ibsen tragedies. In fact, she had previously been told to act more Nordic, or less Mediterranean, and less Jewish in order to play these roles. Yet she began to embrace Jewish identity during the Weimar years, and she appealed to audiences by making herself widely known as Jewish. In other words, she came out and displayed Jewishness in different ways. She served as a dramatic entertainer for the Jewish community and read famous works including Jewish texts such as Heine's Princess Sabbath and Bible excerpts at benefit events and even at Reform synagogue services in 1932. One critic noted that Trish was brave to perform Jewish roles openly, quote, because even if Irena Trish is known to be a Jewish woman, it nevertheless means something that, although most others are cowards, she is reminding the public at this time so demonstratively of her Jewishness, end quote. So I'm going to play this clip, and you'll hear her voice, and she's just sort of doing the words of the song spoken, not singing them. Um, but I do apologize uh, for lack of subtitles. It doesn't matter. It's a performance. Sort of a brief word about the importance of this song. There's sort of very strangely a Hanukkah menorah in the background.
Wein gekauft, habe ich der Vater und zwei Gulden mir gekauft. Lämpchen, ein Lämpchen. Kommt die Katze. Da ist das Lämpchen, das der Vater mir gekauft hat. Lämpchen, auch Lämpchen. Die Katze, Katze, die das Lamm zerrissen. Lämmchen, ein Lämmchen. Kommt der Stock, er schlägt den Hund. Und der Tod, die Katze gebissen. Lämmchen, ach Lämmchen. Get the picture. Es kommt der Todesengel. Sterben lässt er jenen schlechter. Lämmchen, ein Lämmchen. Doch zu guter Letzt, da kommt der Heilige, er sei gelobt, kommt den Todesengel strafen, weil er sterben ließ den Schlechten. Schlechter, der den Ochs geschlachtet, Ochsen, der das Wasser sorgt, Wasser, das gelöscht das Feuer, Feuer, das verbrannt den Stock, Stock, der hat den Hund erschlagen, Hund, der tot die Katze gebissen, Katze, die das Land zerrissen, das der Vater mir gekauft hat und zwei Gulden mir gekauft hat, Lämmchen, ein Lämmchen. So Trisha's voiceover reminds viewers of the real people sitting around the table and the actual Jewish rituals to which the animation is linked. It also created a more permanent and widely distributed legacy of her spoken performances of Jewish texts. It should come as no surprise that German Jewish audiences sought out films with explicitly Jewish themes like the one we just saw. going to not talk about the one on the left here in the interest of time and just move on to the one shown on the right. Um, the 1930 film Dreyfus depicts Jewishness with great care. In my readings of these films, I argue that the most desirable displays of Jewishness were paradoxically highly subtle or nuanced, and sometimes even visually absent, particularly with respect to women. So it was okay to be out or open about Jewishness, but important not to be too ostentatious or obtrusive. The most coveted cinematic encounters with female Jewish characters were unremarkable. Gender stereotypes were reinforced even when Jewishness was displayed in inoffensive ways. So the film Dreyfus received more coverage in the Jewish press than any other film. The director, Richard Oswald, had himself been the subject of anti-Semitic attacks and had faced much resistance in bringing the Dreyfus affair to the German screen. He later wrote to critic Siegfried Krakauer, at that time, one needed a certain amount of audacity to make a film in which the Jew is innocent. 
The film appealed not only to Jewish audiences, but also to other politically leftist filmgoers who wanted to see a pro-Jewish, anti-Nazi film in August 1930, just one month before the German elections. The film's lead actor, who played Dreyfus, Fritz Kortner, observed that movie theaters were overflowing with Germans who were bitter about the anti-Semitic persecution of Dreyfus. The film showcases the well-known historical events that took place from 1894 to 1906. French-Jewish captain Alfred Dreyfus is wrongly accused, sentenced, and sent to prison for transmitting military secrets to the German government. Eventually, after a long imprisonment and intervention by the writer Emile Zola, Dreyfus is exonerated, thanks to proof that M Major Esterhazy is the real traitor. This highly politicized film counters anti-Semitism by exposing the vicious political plot against Dreyfus. The Jewish victim is clearly identified and marked as such from the, out from the outset. The camera tracks the general's finger as it points to the word Jew and ends on Dreyfus. The critical reception of Alfred's wife, Lucy Dreyfus, played by Greta Mosheim, focused on her ability to downplay Jewishness to appeal to the greater public. Mosheim was often described, even by Kortner, you can see them both here on the right, as a blonde half-Jew, a halbjuden, positioning her as ambiguous and able to not to act or look Jewish. Fritz Kortner, in contrast, was repeatedly cast in Jewish stage roles, including neg negative portrayals such as Shylock. His physical characteristics and talent at embodying allegedly culpable Jewish characters made him a regular target of anti-Semitic fantasies. Okay, so I'm just going to show one final short clip. Wer ist denn dieser Alfred Dreyfus? Man weiß nicht viel von ihm. Ein sehr zurückhaltender, sehr ehrgeiziger Offizier, der außergewöhnlich schnell Karriere gemacht hat. Elsässer von Geburt. Der einzige Jude im Generalstaat. <lacht> Done. Um, <clears throat> so in this clip, we, um, we learn that Dreyfus is reserved and ambitious, that he's risen quickly in the ranks, and then we see him summoned to be arrested. The word Jew, Jude, is uttered out loud at least four times in this film. Kortner's Dreyfus roars the phrase, I am innocent, count countless times. 
One critic noted that his screams gripped not only the ears, but also the souls of the listeners. It's not difficult to see why this film found great resonance in 1930. So to conclude, stories about passing and its sometimes tragic consequences did not encourage Jews to pass, but rather the opposite. Writing about the restrictions of forced invisibility served as a means of heightening awareness of that group's visibility. Just as Adam Meyer has pointed out that the passing novels of the Harlem Renaissance were really anti-passing novels, we find in Weimar culture an ongoing conversation about Jewish visibility that reveals an interest in promoting Jewish pride and visibility. Texts produced toward the end of the Weimar period suggest it was becoming more dangerous to be out. The secrecy and privacy afforded by passing was prompted by more than a need to assimilate. Racial anti-Semitism, racism, and homophobia all led to concealed identities. The choice to pass among Weimar Jews took place within a framework of resistance to social pressures and exclusionary measures, or subtle forms of institutionalized anti-Semitism, rather than in response to oppressive legal restrictions. Representations of Weimar Jewish passing possess significant commonalities with texts about passing and visibility produced by other minority groups. Works associated with the Harlem Renaissance condemn arbitrary notions of blackness and whiteness as defined according to visible attributes. Jewish passing narratives similarly deconstruct racial stereotypes. The ability to recognize Jewishness was firmly grounded in a set of coded signifiers that in some ways more closely parallel those used in establishing queer visibility in a world accustomed to closetedness. And here I'm talking about material signifiers, badges, also behavior and language, and perhaps safe spaces. Jennifer Evans, a historian, has recently made the case for avoiding the expectation of invisibility in the queering of German history. The same could be said of how we read, how we read Jewishness. And finally, to return to the question of what lessons Weimar Germany offers for today, when we are again faced with rising levels of anti-Semitism. The most important, perhaps, is that we shouldn't take anything for granted. We need to be vigilant and should not underestimate the intentions of those who spew hate or advocate for discrimination against Jews, but also other groups, in any form. We can also learn from the precautions taken by many Weimar Jews to appear less Jewish. Trying to be less conspicuous may not be the most effective response long term. Instead of responding to anti-Semitism with fear, there might also be reason to take pride in Jewishness and to come out as Jewish even if it's only in the right time and the right place. Thank you. Thank you very much, Perry, for your fascinating lecture about fear and pride coming out and the ambivalence of um, acting Jewish or acting Gentile, whatever you prefer. I guess there are a lot of questions out there, so open the floor. Yes? Uh, you referred to the obvious differences between Polish Jews and um, Central European Jews, ethnic German Jews, in the run-up to the 1930 election. If my memory is correct, there was an infamous fraud case in Berlin in 1930, in the run-up to the election, in which Dr. Goebbels actually emphasized the ethnic origins of the, of the 24 defendants, 23 of whom were Polish Jews. Would you care to comment about that? 
As I mentioned, East European Jews were some of the most sort of highly conspicuous and highly visible um, and also most often targeted um, in Germany at this time. You're allowed to escape. Um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's telling, but also um, perhaps an indicator of some of the inner prejudices that existed among German Jews uh, against and, uh, East European Jews of, of one variety or another, and against the sort of um, pushback that, that existed against East European Jews directed uh, also toward them. So I can imagine that was received um, in a complicated way by both non-Jews and Jews alike. Yes. Thank you. It was a very interesting talk. I was wondering just about the, the inner Jewish dynamics in those in those times, because we know in France and in the UK you had a lot of tensions between uh, Ostjuden and the anglicized or French Jews over how visible they should be and how outwardly they should be about expressing their faith as well, mm -hmm. and that led to severe rifts. Uh, which some say also exacerbated the death count in the Holocaust as well. So was that also the case in Germany? Were there these kinds of tensions, over-visibility as well as other things? Um, absolutely tensions. I think if um, we're strictly making a comparison between Germany and France at that time, um, the, the number and the proportion of Eastern European Jews was much higher in France, so the tensions might have um, also been higher um, or more pressing. Um, again, the East European Jews in Germany were 20-25% of the population and also tended to cluster, at least the more recent immigrants, tended to cluster in certain areas. Um, uh, the tensions absolutely existed, but uh, the other interesting thing about the East European community in Berlin is that um, to some extent it was a, a community in transit, um, some people com coming through and moving on to other places. Um, so, particularly in the 1930s, um, if not before, uh, and so um, some of those tensions were kind of harder to put one's finger on because the community itself was a little bit more scattered. Thank you. There was a question over there. No? Oh, okay, yes. I'm really intrigued by the concept of, of dual coding. Um, I'm wondering, I'm looking at letters from a family who even in the family letters to each other um, use the Christian festivals. Mm. And, and to me, as having been socialized as Christian, I'm not showing any Jewishness. Would you, could you, be, would you be able to think of signifiers of Jewishness that might left over even if somebody assimilates so completely without being baptized but outwardly that even that, that outwardness is even pertains to family relationships if that makes sense so yes. what, are, what are the last vestiges of Jewishness that people would be aware of if they had the code that um, the outside world would totally not get yes and so well, the first thing I want to say is that I think um, simply using the names of Christian festivals or holidays doesn't necessarily imply um, a, a non-Jewishness about the person. I think it just implies that they're, you know, the same as today. If 
Christmas is a national holiday, so you might refer to Christmas as the day on which you were not working, right? Um, but in that same vein, um, for example, one actress that I researched several years ago, Elizabeth Bergner, um, who was not religious at all and certainly not a practicing religiously observant Jew, um, would do something like write in her diary, on Yom Kippur, I met so-and-so in a cafe for, for lunch, right? And so she's not observing the holiday, but she's fully aware that that is the holiday and that that day is sort of a calendar marker for her. Um, so I think uh, an awareness of, of the sort of cyclical nature of Jewish holidays or time um, existed even for those who didn't celebrate holidays. Um, but it's often down to the level of language, and I think that's where a coded term, a, a term like mishpacha or chutzpah or what have you, some of these terms that kind of made their way into German today through the Yiddish speakers and who, who lived in Germany. Um, some of them might have been sort of used as uh, almost like a, a way of connoting Jewishness, but also known to, to, to be broader than that too. A couple of comments rather than questions. Uh, the first one is the, um, I suppose you could call the uh, corollary of um, a Jewish person passing as a Gentile, which was a curious case, which you might have heard of, which I read about. Um, there was a Peruvian diplomat who was in Berlin in would probably be the mid-30s, and he had very pronounced Semitic features. He kept getting beaten up. I don't know what actually happened to him, but that's an interesting case. And the, the other point was that... Um, it was rather uh, interesting to see that um, the passage about uh, whether it's safe to read uh, Jewish newspapers in the street. I'd always complacently assumed it was, and uh, a couple of years ago I happened to be reading the Jewish news on a 43 bus on Archway Road, and I was subjected to an anti-Semitic assault, fortunately a verbal assault, so that rather shook me up. And since then I'm very careful about reading Jewish newspapers in public. Yes, and I think this is where some, some of these similarities between then and now are sort of striking and unnerving and unsettling. And um, I think the way that we're, I mean, we even see some of these attacks uh, filmed and on the internet going viral now, um, particularly here in the UK. Um, and so I think it's really fascinating to look at how some of these same patterns existed. Um, some of these same impulses to conceal when it wasn't safe, but that question of what spaces are safe and um, a public space like a train or a plane or well, now, nowadays a plane, um, one, one asks the question of where it's safe and I'm so sorry. There's a question over there. Um, thank you for that, it was really fascinating. I'd like to invite you to say a little bit more about how you're thinking about passing invisibility partly vis-a-vis -vis queer theory and theories of, of racial passing, because a, a number of the points have drawn on the, distinct, the differences between uh, Eastern Jews and not Eastern Jews, if we use that terminology. And I was thinking, you know, to what extent is that um, Eastern Jewish embodiment, particularly men's presentation, a form of Jewish hypervisibility which is about religious distinction, both inter-religious distinction and intra religious distinctions, so between co-religionists, vis-a-vis a display of racial possibility, of racial identification, mm -hmm. and Jewishness is racialized at different moments in different ways, 
because of the ways in which one is rendered visible or invisible through the available lexicon of racial and ethnic and religious stereotype and identification, so forms of passing, mixing, etc. And I wanted to ask you to take that back to, sorry, this is a long one, take that back to your point about the body. So Jewish men, in the last instance, if they're circumcised, can be read from the body, but Jewish women can't. And how do you see any links there with the ways in which masculine presenting lesbians are rendered more visible, whereas femmes conventionally are seen as being able to pass? Thank you for these um, excellent questions. So um, first let me say that the argument about men being sort of inherently more physically visible or distinguishable as Jewish is, is not my argument. It's one that I cite um, that other scholars have made, um, particularly since circumcision is not particularly publicly visible generally. Um, but for me, um, the question of bodily transformation or modification is um, there, there's, there would be a distinction if I, if I understood your question correctly um, in terms of especially thinking about masculine presenting women um, because some of those masculine forms of presentation might be again very easily changeable a hairstyle, clothing, um, things that would be different than uh, a more permanent alteration to the body um, but for me, what I, um, what, I, what I would like to say to sort of respond to your general question is that the religious dimensions of Jewish identity presentation in a, in a sort of material way, um, for me, more closely parallel the ways that queerness, gayness, LGBT identity, et cetera, might be presented on the body through clothing, through hair, through other sort of things that are take a material concrete form but are also sort of change, changeable or modifiable. Whereas the more racialized stereotypes or aspects relating to um, natural hair color, eye color, physical features um, are more in line with some of the racialized stereotypes that we see in African-American passing studies. Um, that These identi identity features that are sort of embedded uh, in the body. Um, or perhaps might be changeable in terms of something like hair color, but others not as changeable. Um, so to me, the separation between um, religious presentation versus um, Jewish identity as it is embedded within the body in terms of uh, racialized construction of Jewishness is how I also see the application of the theory on two different levels. Um, one applying more to material signifiers that are added to the body, and one applying more to the stereotypes that exist with respect to physical appearance and constructions of race. If that helps answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I have a comment which relates exactly to what this lady has been mentioning. I think that uh, we have to look at um, construction of masculinity when we look at the gendered Jewish uh, uh, body. And contrary to what you're saying about material signifiers, it was the, the first um, patient uh, for rhinoplasty had been a Jewish man, I believe. And Jewish men went through all sorts of surgical um, procedures 
to um, my English is failing me uh, to um, conform to a gentile masculine as opposed to um, manly masculinity is the new model of the 19th and early 20th century so they would have um, surgical attempts to recreate the foreskin and they would even get dual scars um, in an artificial way in order to recreate this kind of valor that was very, very um, fascistic and um, fascist and proto-Nazi at the time. So I think that they did concentrate on the physical body a lot more than um, one would think. And I think their motivation, I, I'm not sure about the female motivation of passing, uh, was mainly mainly had to do with the um, um, new construction of masculinity to which they de desperately tried to conform. Yes, uh, many scholars have written extensively about precisely what you're talking about. Um, Sandra Gilman and um, Dana Boyarin, Jonathan Boyarin, have all sort of theorized the way that the constructions of... Sander Gilman and um, two, two Boyarins, um, B-O-Y-A-R-I-N, um, have, have theorized this extensively. Um, and Pellegrini has written about this as well. Um, so there's lots to say about the ways that um, men sort of conform to, um, and, and also responded to stereotypes of Jewish masculinity being sort of more emasculated. Um, in my work, I respond quite a bit to those theories, um, but I also try to take my analysis in directions that hadn't been taken before by looking at women a little bit more. There was a question over there. Yeah, that was yeah. actually links to what has just been said. Um, my question would have been um, how this plastic surgery was, was kind of um, represented in terms of gender, so whether you have any idea um, how the proportions were, and we've already heard about masculinity, and um, also one thing with regards to masculinity, this whole kind of sports movement that Daniel has, mm -hmm. has written about, mm -hmm. the muscoluda mm -hmm. and the um, gymnastics. And my question, leading further from that, or just kind of pointing towards another dimension that would interest me, what was the inner Jewish discourse about these body alterations? What did, did people in the Jewish community talk about that? Was it something that was widely discussed? Or was it something that was happening and not addressed in debates? That is actually the one that would be interested in Yeah, thank you um, for both of those questions. Um, I'm less equipped with numbers or statistics in terms of who had what surgeries. I, I don't have that for you offhand. Um, but what's interesting is that the inner Jewish discourse um, often avoided talking about things that were sort of considered to be too modern or only criticized them because it was uh, such a, you have to imagine sort of who were the intended readers of the Jewish press, for example. So if you're looking at who were the, who was the audience of this conversation, this discourse happening among um, different sort of Jewish perspectives, um, most of it tended toward um, thinking in a, in a very conservative way, would not have advocated for plastic surgery or bodily modification, um, simply because that would have been considered sort of radical or modern. Um, and was that also opposed to any kind of really modern fashion, um, broadly speaking, short skirts, high heels, all of that was sort of not what the good Jewish woman should be wearing. Um, but that's not necessarily reflective of 
the way that actual people dressed or acted or uh, lived their lives. Um, so it's, it's difficult to put your finger on um, the difference and the disconnect between the conversation happening in sort of official organs of the Jewish community versus what Jews might have been doing or wearing. I would like to come in, um, going back to one of your examples. Mm -hmm. um, this extremely interesting, beautiful film as Alte Gesetz, the ancient law, yes. and the figure of Bauch. Yes. Yes, there's this famous scene where he gets rid of his pious, but he does it after having got the job. Mm. Mm. No, it's, it's, I mean, mm. there are two different, mm. but if you go to the Tinsul card, yes. it's quite obvious. Yes. He did this after having got the job, mm. after he has become so-called Burgschauspieler. And yes, he changes his appearance, but he never, he never really leaves where he comes from. There's, for example, another very famous part in the film where he gets visited by the beggar, mm. right, mm. from the city, from the Jewish village where he comes from. The beggar looks like a Jewish beggar, right? Yes. And Baruch's in the middle, at home, working with the costume designers, to get his new costumes fitted for whatever thing he's going to play at the Burgtheater. And when the beggar comes in, looking pretty Jewish, so to speak, he embraces him. Mm. And they sit really, really close to each other. Mm. So there's really no kind of shame mm. played out being Jewish and being part of uh, Ostjudentum and all the other members of the, the Burgtheater who are at his home trying mm. to fit his new costumes, they almost faint when they see what is going on. Mm. But he is really true to his, where he comes from, right? Mm -hmm. By showing great affection to the beggar on an emotional level. And, and I think that's, that's something which is very important to understand this film, because this film argues for, that's how I see the film, mm -hmm of a coming together of different worlds, and all the worlds are on the same level. And that's a quite a different opposition, a position that, for example, Golem. Mm. You know, Golem argues for sex between Jews and Gentiles ends up in murder and catastrophe. Therefore, Jews have to live there, Gentiles have to live there. That's very different in, 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 in the Salte Gesetz. So I, I would rather say this, the film as Alte Gesetz, argues for visibility and not for invisibility. And the film was also pretty successful. And he also addresses um, um, the question of Ostjudentum. You know, when they yeah. set up the premiere, the premiere was linked with um, collecting money for soup kitchens. Mm -hmm which were then used by Ostjuden. So it was also a clear kind of, he sent also a very clear political message. Mm. You know, talking about Habsburg, but basically yes. talking about Berlin 1923. So I would rather see this film a bit differently. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your reading of yeah. this film. Uh, I, do, I don't actually treat it very much in mm -hmm, my, in mm -hmm. my book, um, partly because so many other scholars have worked on it already, and it's mm -hmm. definitely the best known of the films that mm -hmm. I mentioned, or the most talked about now. Um, what's interesting to me, what strikes me, is that the scene that you <coughs> mentioned where the, um, the beggar comes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, actually parallels some of the scenes that I do write about in my chapter mm -hmm. on hostile outings. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I look at <coughs> at least two different instances um, 
uh, of literary works where mm-hmm. uh, the the either the family member or whoever mm-hmm. comes from the Jewish town or the shtetl to visit mm-hmm. the person who's kind of gone to the city yeah. and is trying to make it as an actor or mm-hmm. a dancer or what have you. And that act of seeing the sort of more Jewish mm-hmm. or more openly outwardly Jewish mm-hmm. uh, family member coming to visit the, the now sort of passing mm-hmm. or at least not openly Jewish um, performer does end up kind of outing them. And in one case, mm-hmm. it is even a hostile mm-hmm. um, act with sort of accusations mm-hmm. being thrown. Um, and so that to me is, I think, the most striking mm-hmm. thing about the scene you mentioned is that um, we can't forget about the sort of juxtaposition of the old yeah. and the new. Yeah. Um, and that contrast of visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's another way of also sort of interpreting some mm-hmm. of those scenes or some of parts mm-hmm. of the film that you mentioned as um, offering us sort of a contrast yeah. in Jewishness um, and thinking about how it has different faces, um, some of which are more easily readable than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because this film plays out some kind of a proud Jewish masculinity, mm. actually. That's how I would argue, mm. who is kind of visible, not just non-visible. Mm. I'm not quite sure, is this very typical or is this just one case? Looking at your examples, you have looked at. Yeah, um, there aren't as many films as one mm-hmm. would think that still exist today that have yes. these sort of clear, easy to read depictions of Jewishness on screen. Um, I, I have to say that it's a little atypical just because it's gotten mm-hmm. so much attention and has had um, so so much work and also do, work done on the film and also. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the interesting thing is the year, and that also marks it in sort of film mm-hmm. history. Um, the German Jewish press was much more interested in film by the end of the 1920s, particularly yeah. as images became more popular, um, mm-hmm. printing technology improved in the mm-hmm. 1920s. And so by the end of the 1920s, we see much, after 1926, 27, we see uh, much more film reception in the mm-hmm. Jewish press. So that, there's actually very little that I found on mm-hmm. Das Alte Gazette in the Jewish press. Um, a couple mentions of it here and there. Yes, that's true. Um, Most reviews are in the Gentile press. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, yeah. that question interests me as well. So why, why there isn't or oh, wasn't more thinking mm-hmm. about it um, mm-hmm. in that inner Jewish conversation. Mm-hmm. And it may, it may be a question of film just hadn't quite landed yet in, mm-hmm. in sort of mm-hmm. Jewish culture mm-hmm. in 23. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you very much for that. It's, it's interesting. But there's one, mm-hmm. one picture that you showed of these uh, Jewish uh, students at Heidelberg, mm-hmm. which seems oh. to me quite extraordinary because the rector would have been Philippe Lenard, who was a, a, a terrific Nazi. In fact, he, he called Einstein's theory of relativity Jewish physics. Mm-hmm. He's so much anti-Jewish. And it seems strange that you would have actually even Jewish students in there, let alone parading their Jewishness. Um, someone like Tubingen, for example, only had four Jewish academics even before 1933. <coughs> so I'm just wondering, how was this... How was this sort of Jewish student boom, as it were? Uh, was that throughout Germany, or was it only in one or two places, one or two universities? Um, so there was an umbrella organization called the called the Cartel Convent um, yes. organization. Mm-hmm. That's the one that I mentioned, and the picture from Heidelberg was a picture of a student group in that organization. But the short answer is um, because Jewish students were often shut out of German German fraternities. Um, they often formed their own. Um, and so there were Jewish fraternities in many different places. Um, any 
I, I don't know, I don't want to say any, but in many different places where you would find um, numerous sort of uh, German student organizations, if Jews had been shut out or if they had wanted to sort of found their own groups, they were in, in many different universities. And for me, this image was actually the, one of the easiest ones to find. Um, I, I really did go looking mm -hmm. for an image to complement what I knew about yeah. the history. Um, and I went to the Leo Beck Institute in mm -hmm. New York and I said, what have you got? And dozens of images of Jewish student organizations, Jewish student groups wearing all kinds of yellow different mm -hmm. um, sashes and badges. So I had my pick. Um, this one looks nice and clear. Um, but many, many groups of students gathering um, from different, different organizations and different universities. So it was um, a widespread phenomenon at and beyond Heidelberg. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Yes. I actually work on a student organization at the University of Vienna, and I wanted to comment on this because I think the yellow might actually not be a good color for, for the language they use. I mean, I went through almost all Jewish organizations at the University of Vienna, and they actually use gold. It's the gold that they are referring as, their, as the as the color that they are ascribing. I mean, I'm not saying that it's the case in all of them, but that was actually made me think of this, like that yellow might be like the Jewish representation in Gentile eyes, but the gold is this like, the, like I mean, they use the symbolics, but they actually upgraded and actually maybe even negate this Gentile like perspective, or not negate, but like work on it or like, I wonder if there's variation between the groups too. I mean, some of the groups that I looked at definitely say Gelb, um, and you know, Gelb and Blau and Weiss are the different colors in play, at least um, in how it was perceived by by those talking about the colors in the organization. Um, but I wonder if there was also a difference in Vienna, um, and perhaps a notable one, a marked one. There, there are a couple of different books on the subject too, and I'm. I'm at least one of the names is escaping me, but if we talk afterwards, I can think of some more. I would like to come in again because I was very struck by one of your first examples about jewelries. Mm -hmm. and, and the debate is, at least in Switzerland, still out there that um, mm. when you go to the synagogue in Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, be mm. careful with your jewelries. Wow. Right? So it has not gone away, at least in the 70s, 80s. Um, and my question is, jewelry. And you know, I like Julia very much. <laughs> um, but in the debate, jewelry has to do an awful lot with gender. Mm, right? Yes, yes. Feminine, yes. not for males, unfortunately. Now, is there something which is similar but only appears come to the fore in the 1920s in the Weimar Republic? in terms of visibility and non-visibility, which has to do with males. You know, kind of, don't do this. It's very, you know, like, don't wear jewelry. Well, the, the closest analogy I have is mm -hmm. <coughs> that sort of metal stecknadel, the pin, oh, okay. um, worn by members of the um, Reichsbundjudische Frontsoldaten, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is almost a form of jewelry anyway in terms mm -hmm. of its decorative appeal. Um, and there was a, a question or a debate as to whether it signified Jewishness so clearly with the letter J in the middle of the mm -hmm. RJF, right? If you knew what mm -hmm. that stood for, you knew it meant Jewish, but if you didn't, mm -hmm. maybe you didn't. Um, but it's still the letter J. So how, to what extent would that have been a dangerous thing that one should have thought about before mm -hmm. donning in public? 
Um, and there was a conversation about that, uh, whether it was safe to wear such a marker of Jewishness. Mm -hmm. not, the same, not the same signifier of opulence or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wealth that jewelry might have been. Um, but it's, it's very interesting to hear about mm -hmm. um, a, an ongoing conversation mm -hmm. about being careful of, of opulence. I would say mm -hmm. um, in the States, there are plenty of places where that conversation is, is not happening, <laughs> where, pe mm -hmm. where people are wearing their, donning their finest jewelry mm -hmm. and um, an attire uh, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's mm -hmm. time to, to show off. Yeah. Yes. We talked a lot about um, what one wears in terms of clothes or how, how one does surgery and things like that. One thing I'm interested in is gesture. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a lot of discussion during the Haskalah about the uh, need to refrain from giving, making extravagant gesture and that sort of linking it to sort of wildness and, and being civilized and the sort of mental space. Now, how much was that being discussed? in, uh, say, Berlin in the 30s, as to whether one should refrain one's gestures. Was that something, for example, the Zentralverein was talking about? Was it discussed at gestures that would be made perhaps by Osnuden? And what degree of inhibition developed about how people could openly express themselves, for example, with gesture? Thinking about the complexity of trying to do that differently when one's at home to when one's out. And I'm also thinking that particularly in terms of gay culture, where mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion about avoiding certain gestures because they make it self-evident to your gay. Sure. What degree there was a discussion about curving gesture and becoming inhibited, which of course then affects your frame of mind? Yes, thank you for this excellent question. Um, I, f I have fewer examples or pieces of evidence where people are discussing gesture in an abstract sense as it relates to Jewishness um, and thinking about the everyday person and, and their gestures and how that might have played out. Um, but what I absolutely have is conversations about actors mm -hmm. um, on stage and screen, um, both, both theater and film actors, and the way that they use gestures and the way that those gestures were either um, authentic representations of Jewishness because they were not exaggerated because Obviously, the idea was to not be so stereotypically um, over overdone, um, but also uh, a criticism of, for example, um, I have a long uh, section in my book on the film Mensch ohne Namen from 1932, mm -hmm. where um, Fritz Kuhnbaum, the Viennese actor, plays this sort of very coded Jewish character, and his gestures and um, de demeanor are, are all coded negatively Jewish in that film um, and contrasted with uh, the, the actor played by Werner, or the, the part played by Werner Krauss, who's a, a mm -hmm. different presentation. Um, and for me, what's, what's so interesting is not just the way that the actor, who was himself um, prone towards some of the more stereotypical expressions uh, uh, through gesture and, and also physical presence, um, but the way that people criticized him for taking this role criticized him for allowing himself to be on screen playing what what could be perceived as sort of an anti-Semitically depicted character. Um, and if you read it, if you read the film in hindsight, it's, it's easier to, to read it that way. Um, so there is a conversation happening about whether Jews should allow themselves to be depicted on screen playing these roles that show these sort of stereotypical representations and allowing that to sort of manifest um, uh, in people's minds, in viewers' minds. Yeah, thank you. 
Yes. I just wanted to um, come in because we're both uh, literary scholars, and I, uh, I know you, you're focusing on the visual, but yeah. um, it struck me that the parallel to names. Yes. That uh, you know when people, when Jewish people give up, they take on another last name, mm -hmm. and the calling out of that among anti-Semites. So they would write, for example, I mean, example, British Undorf, and then in parentheses. Bundelfingen, his, his original Jewish name. Mm -hmm. um, and it strikes me it's kind of interesting because it's sort of a, it's, I mean, I'm, I don't know, I assume it was quite controversial uh, among Jews you know, doing this kind of thing. Um, but it's also interesting, you know, with respect to the questions of like plastic surgery and everything, it's a kind of, <coughs> it's, it's a sort of, I mean, plastic surgery is irreversible, I guess. And presumably changing your name would 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 be reversible, it, mm. but it usually wasn't. Uh, so it seems to be a kind of a, a very strong uh, commitment to uh, to passing. Yeah, um, I have a short section in my book where I look at some of the instances where names play a role in the sort of identification um, or self-identification uh, presentation of whether someone was trying to seem more Jewish or less Jewish, and also the way it was received. Um, some of the interesting, the most interesting cases that I found uh, were, were questions where people were deciding whether or not someone was Jewish based on, um, based on a last name, and including like in the inner Jewish conversation. Um, and sometimes they were wrong. And so there was, you know, this is an erroneous, not, not sure way of telling Jewishness, right? Um, so the sort of stereotype of, of names can, can be very tricky. Um, but what I will say also is that there's a terrific book by um, a colleague, uh, Kirsten Vermeglich uh, from Michigan State University. Her book is called A Rosenberg by Any Other Name or something like this. It's got a great title. Uh, I highly recommend that. On, um, it's more on focuses more on American Jews uh, and name-changing uh, practices. So if there are no other... Yes, one last question. Yes, this is actually post-Weimar Republic, but it represents the most hideous and extreme example of a Jewish person passing as non-Jewish, and that's the remarkable case of Erhard Milch, although he's actually half-Jewish, Goering's deputy. And uh, but, but I suppose presumably people have um, heard of that. But... Um, there were there were cases of people who um, even in the Third Reich. I mean, for example, there's this controversy of uh, the Mischlingen, half Mischlinger, and apparently there were tens of thousands of half Jewish, according to the Nuremberg laws, or quarter Jewish, who were actually serving the Wehrmacht. I mean, that's obviously used by Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, but nevertheless, it's a particularly poignant and tragic fact. Thanks for your comment. Okay. No more questions? Okay, then I'd like to bring the official part of this evening to an end. So my thanks go out to Kerry for her really fascinating lecture and answers about, about a lot. You know, passing illusions is really the precise title for that. But I very much hope it's not just about illusions to be publicly recognizable as a Jew in the future. Okay, with these words, I, I would say the German Soul Institute is very happy to invite you to wine and to continue our discussions over there. Thank you.